Yep. This was rather interesting. Now, you remember a little while ago, Disney did that big Investor's Day live stream and everything where they announced a plethora tapping into my three amigos there, tapping into a and announcing a plethora of new projects. Projects from, you know, Shogun, projects to the new Mighty Ducks, all these Marvel project projects, and a bunch of Star Wars projects, including new Star Wars shows. Like, well, they announced, uh, they gave a bunch of information about the Obi-Wan series. They announced the Ahsoka show. They announced a bunch of stuff. And one of the shows that they announced was the Rangers of the New Republic. And that got a lot of us really interested because a lot of us are thinking, Rob, what's going on here? Is this going to be a new group of characters in this same time frame? Or is it going to be the characters spun off from Mandalorian characters like Cara Dune, characters like uh, Paul from uh, from Kim's Convenience and was obviously the X-Wing pilot in, in a couple of the episodes there of Mandalorian and maybe some others, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, it looks like that might be put on hold. In an article in Variety, Variety has now listed that the Rangers of the New Republic is no longer in development. Now, before we go on and talk about this more in depth, let's let me say this. It is possible the Variety article was not crystal clear about whether this is a temporary situation or it's just done. Like they're not developing it anymore or is it a for now we're not developing it. I think for the sake of our conversation, I think we can make the assumption until we hear otherwise that this is probably it's now done, that they're not doing it anymore. It is no longer being developed. It's no longer being actively developed. Now, this brings up a lot of speculation, Rob, about why, if this is indeed true, and they, you know, they have pulled the plug on it and they're no longer going to be developing it, and it's no longer being developed, why is that the case? Well, there could be a couple of explanations. One is maybe they just figured their Star Wars plate is just getting a little bit too full. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, they got a lot of stuff coming. I mean, it, it, not just Lucasfilm, but like Disney Plus as a whole. Maybe they just figured, you know what? We got so much on the go. We got the Ahsoka show we're trying to do. We're trying to get Obi-Wan up and running. We're not even talking about the movies right now. Uh, we've got the uh, the Boba Fett series coming out. We've got Mandalorian season three. We've got a whole lot of crap on our plate right now. Probably just not a lot of people interested in it. That is one possibility. The other possibility, and this is the more salacious one, Rob, that I think a lot of people understandably are focusing on a little bit more. And that is that Rangers of the New Republic was, like a lot of us are speculating, going to feature Cara Dune. It was going to feature Cara Dune. Well, of course, we now know that Cara Dune, who's played by Gina Carano, Disney isn't going to work with Gina Carano anymore. And so, obviously, a lot of people instantly go to the place of, did they cancel it because, you know what, this show was going to be pretty much, one of the main centers of it was going to be cartoon, they're not going to have Gina Carano, and they've already said they're not going to recast the character, and so without that character, they just decided to pull the plug on the show. That's a strong possibility. Again, there is no evidence anywhere to suggest it's one thing or another. There are other possibilities. Possibility number one, maybe it's just temporarily no longer in, in development. 90% of the time, Rob, tell me if you agree with this or not, 90% of the time, whenever a studio says something is no longer in development, 
we never see that thing again. Like that 90% of the time, that means it's just done. But maybe it's possible it's temporary. It's possible. If it is done, maybe it's done because of overcrowding scheduling, or maybe it's done because of the Cardoon and Gina Carano situation. I'm leaning personally towards it seems to make more sense that this has more to do with Gina Carano no longer being there and they were going to use that character as center. I know, Rob, you hear about this. What do you think is actually happening and what do you think ultimately brought it on? Well, I mean, I think <laughs> I, I think what, what brought it on is the whole Cara Dune situation because even if they move forward with it without Gina Carano, everybody would have said, well, this show should have Gina Carano in it. They were in a they were in a lose lose situation here, um, and I, I I think they kind of had to let it go because there was no way they're, they're damned if they did and damned if they didn't. I think it's too bad. I mean the the it, it would have been nice to see people just uh, like Gina Carano as a human being is not Cara Dune. She's right. an actress that plays this character Cara Dune. The character of Cara Dune who objects to the character of Cara Dune. I I. I mean, I understand if she was a mass murderer or or something egregious. I mean, making bad analogies is not something that anybody necessarily should be pilloried for. Um, you know, she's not some political theorist who's coming out and saying this is the way it should be. She's an actress and an MMA fighter. <laughs> so it, it's it's too bad. I mean, the whole thing all around is too bad. I'm not going to get my Cara Dune hot toy, which really bums me out. And... Um, all the other Cara Dune toys have gone way up on the secondary market, so I'll probably never buy one of those either. And I really would have liked to have seen a Rangers of the New Republic show with Cara Dune. I mean, I, how the New Republic is going to re reorganize itself or whatever could have been really, really interesting. So I'm bummed out we're not going to get a show like this. Maybe they'll retool it and turn it into something else. I don't know. But I think who loses, we all do. Because we're not going to get another show that could be potentially good like Mandalorian good or like Ahsoka good or like, you know, ever the, the disciple good, whatever these shows are going to be. Um, and I, you know, we all lose out. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I understand the discussion about why not just recast. Cause you know, me, I re recast, recast, you know, the actors are not, the, the characters are not there to serve the actors. The actors are there to serve the characters recast, you know, I'm always for recasting. This is a tricky situation, though, for for Disney, because if you recast it, it brings up the entire discussion again. And it's going to like whether they want it to or not, for months, the talk is going to be about they should have just kept Gina and, you know, a, a bunch of people. And there because right now, I think Disney's kind of looking at what's going on at Warner Brothers with they replaced Johnny Depp with quite frankly, an even better actor. I, I like Johnny Depp as an actor very, very much, but Mads Mikkelsen is something special. Yeah. So they yeah. went out and got Mads Mikkelsen to replace him in the Fantastic Beast movie. But even though they went out and got one of the, I mean, who doesn't love Mads Mikkelsen? Everybody loves Mads Mikkelsen. But even <laughs> Mads Mikkelsen, it's still, it's drawing a lot of ire and the whole fact that we can, and it kind of made, it keep kept the Johnny Depp story in the focus. And maybe Disney's looking at that and saying, look, it's not worth the headache. It's honestly just not worth the headache to us. And if trying to make a show is just going to give us grief and headache, we've got other shows to do. We've got Cassie and Andor coming. We got Obi-Wan coming. We got the Ahsoka Tano show coming. We got more Mandalorian coming. We got a lot of good things to focus on. We don't need the distraction. And I wouldn't be surprised if we found out if that was it there. But 
I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. We're going to see how it develops. And who knows, maybe they still go forward and do it at some point in the future. But guys, for right now, the question is for you. What do you think about this? According to Variety, this is no longer a show that's in development. Maybe that's permanent. 90, 90 times out of 100, it usually is. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's because of Gina Carano. Maybe it's not. Whatever. What do you guys think? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's really get into our one main topic of conversation here today, Rob. You know, 2021, we have just started to see the the reemergence of the movie theater experience again. It's still just in its very, very first baby steps. But obviously, you know, we've had King Kong, Mortal Kombat. Uh, For some people, got to see Army of Darkness or Army of the Dead, I should say. Army of Darkness would have been something. Army of the Dead. Um, you know, there've been a couple of others as well, but we're just really at that starting point. And as we sit down and look at what's still to come in 2021, there is still a hell of a lot of good stuff coming. Oh yeah. And I remember sitting down and looking at all this stuff and I'm like, am I even going to be able to come up with a top 10? Because there's like, there's just so much good looking stuff and so many things that I hate to leave off this list, but leave things off the list. We must guys. So that's why we're going to do right now. We are going to talk about our top 10 most anticipated films still to come out in 2020. Now, I should make a note. I watched Cruella last night. So you are not going to see Cruella on my list. I'm not going to tell you whether it would have been on my list or not, but I have now seen it. So I can no longer talk about it as a, as a potential upcoming anticipated movie, by the way, I like Cruella very much. I was very surprised by the film. Very surprised by it. I put a tweet up about it. It's still under full review embargo. We'll review it in a little bit, but uh, I really did. Cruella was much better than I thought it was going to be, Uh, and Emma Stone is amazing. But that being said, let's get over to it and start running down top 10. For me, here's my top 10. Then we'll do Rob's and we'll discuss a little bit. My number 10, James Gunn's Suicide Squad. Uh, I I just, I am in love, as a film fan, I am in love with the mind of James Gunn. I just love what he does. I love the sensibility he brings to it. Putting in bonkers characters like Polka Dot Man and Peacemaker and things like that in this movie. Um, and just that James Gunn is connected to it. So for all those reasons and more, Suicide Squad is why, it's, it's Suicide Squad is my number 10. My number nine most anticipated movie. And Rob, I never would have said this. You go back to like 2017 and say, John, do you think a movie from this franchise would ever be in your top 10 of anything? I would say no, but it is now Halloween kills. <laughs> I, I don't like any of the Halloween movies except for that last one that just came out with Jamie Lee Curtis. I went into that going, ah, I'm not a big fan of the franchise. I don't even like the original. I don't think the original holds up, but I'm in the minority on that. That's fine. And then I went in to go see that last one with Jamie Lee Curtis. And Rob, I was so entertained from start to finish. I was in this movie. I was loving it. I was eating it up. And so because of that, Halloween Kills is actually my number nine most anticipated movie this year. Never had a Halloween movie on my most anticipated list before, but there is now Halloween Kills is my number nine. All right. My number eight most anticipated movie, Shang-Chi. You know, I was kind of excited about it because 
one, it's a, a new Marvel film. There you go. Sure. Uh, I got really excited when my guy Simu Liu from uh, Kim's Convenience got cast in it. Good to see a good Canadian kid in there. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And then the trailer came. And I, I thought the trailer was really good and really solid. So for me, Shang-Chi comes in at my number eight spot. In my number seven spot, and this one, if I had made this list a week ago, Rob, wouldn't have been on my list. But the trailer just dropped for it, and I'm all about it, is Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, yeah. we, t- we talked about this trailer the other day, Rob. And uh, I I knew almost, other than the fact that you know, a couple of the cast who were in it, you know, Julianne Moore is in it. Other than that and the title, I really didn't know anything about this project. Then the trailer, there was something so beautifully human and authentic about it. I ate it up. I loved it. I don't know anything about the Broadway play, so that's not coloring my perception here. But I fell in love with the concept of this movie once I saw the trailer. So for me, my number seven most anticipated film for the rest of the year is Dear Evan Hansen. All right. Number six. It's going to be later, but it's the Eternals, Rob. It's the Eternals. You know, I, I'm just, especially the hype continues to grow with all the success that Chloe's out. Of course, the single most important person when it comes to the overall quality of a movie is the director. It, they're not the only one, but they're the most significant one. And seeing that Chloe's out, the reigning defending undisputed greatest director in the world right now as bestowed upon by the Directors Guild of America and the Academy, uh, Asterix Academy Awards 2021. Uh, Chloe Zhao winning Best Director, her film winning Best Picture. This is just adding to the hype of this. Then they finally gave us our first little glimpse of some footage from Eternal. Still haven't got a full proper trailer yet, but getting our first glimpse of some footage. Very excited about that. And then hearing from people we know inside Disney, Rob, some saying this might be the best movie that Marvel has ever made. Yes. That's high praise. So even though I wasn't super stoked on it, Maybe several, maybe six months ago, uh, it's right now my number six most anticipated movie for the remainder of 2021. All right. Now we get into our top five. Top five. Going to go with Spider-Man 3, Spider-Man No Way Home. I have been positively delighted, Rob, by the first two Spider-Man movies uh, under uh, John Watts. He's coming back to direct this third one. It's not just that I love Tom Holland as Spider-Man. I have really loved his supporting cast, particularly the dynamic between Tom Holland and Jacob Bartolone, who plays Ned. I love them. Zendaya has has just fit into this cast so perfectly. I've really enjoyed this thing. So you've got a good track record with the first two They were both great. Looking forward. So my number five most anticipated for the remainder of the year is Spider-Man 3 No Way Home. All right. My number four. And this isn't going to be on everybody's list, but you knew it was going to be on mine. Venom, There Will Be Carnage. I had a ridiculously good time watching the first Venom movie. And I didn't know what to expect going into it, but I remember me and Ray. Me and Ray went to go watch the first Venom in theaters, and we were both stunned how much we laughed and enjoyed it, and we're smiling at the audience we were with. I can't speak for the audience you saw your movie with, but the audience I saw Venom with was having a blast and having a great time, and my wife loved it, and everybody got so psyched at the, psyched at the end when you know Woody Harrelson popped up as Cletus and knowing he was going to play Carnage and all that kind of stuff. I'm super excited about it. So Venom 2 is actually the number four on my list for my most anticipated. All right, let's get now into our top three. Number three, 
and it's been in my most anticipated list now for what feels like three years, Rob. James Bond, No Time to Die. Because I forget, what was the original release date of this? It was sometime in 2020. It, yeah, it was April of 2020. April of 2020. So I, we have been waiting for this movie forever. But everything I've seen, all the footage, all the trailers, even the new song uh, by Billie Eilish and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's got me. It's completely got me. This feels like it's going to be Bond at its best. So my number three most anticipated movie for the rest of the year is James Bond, No Time to Die. Number two, Dune. By what some people consider to be the maybe the best director working in the business today in Denis Villeneuve. I mean, this guy just, you know, he crouches down, bends over, and craps out gold. That's what Denis Villeneuve does. He just makes his movies excellent. With subject material like Dune, with the cast that he has put together, and, you know, you're talking about uh, uh, Timothy Chalamet. You're talking about Rebecca Ferguson. You're talking about, you know, Josh and Oscar and Jason. And on a just a terrific cast with one of the best directors on the planet, with one of the most celebrated sci-fi stories of all time. I cannot wait for Dune. And in most years, this would have been my number one most anticipated still. But as we get closer to it, Rob, I can't deny it. My number one most anticipated movie for the rest of the year is A Quiet Place 2. Now, that shouldn't come as a big surprise because the first A Quiet Place uh, was my favorite movie of 2018. My number one absolute favorite movie of 2018 was, was A Quiet Place. And... I put it, I had it just over Black Klansman, which was my second favorite movie of that year. And Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was my third favorite movie of the year. But I, more than most people, was completely like in amazement of how John Krasinski told that story. I was bought into it and invested in that movie from the first two or three minutes of runtime, I was in there hanging on the edge of my seat. Rob, the stepping on the rusty nail sticking out of a step is still one of the most gut-wrenching scenes to me I've ever seen in a movie, and it's something that's so <laughs> simple. It's something that's so simple, and I absolutely adored it. So my number one uh, most anticipated movie still remaining is A Quiet Place. So just once again, guys, here, here we go. So we are looking at, as I run down my list, number 10, Suicide Squad. Number 9, Halloween Kills. Number 8, Shang-Chi. Number 7, Dear Evan, or even Hansen, Evan Hansen. Number 6, The Eternals. Number 7, or number 5, Spider-Man 3. Number 4, Venom 2. Number 3, No Time to Die. Number 2, Dune. And number 1, A Quiet Place Part 2, which is getting ridiculously good reviews. Now, Rob, there's a, like I, there's a bunch of films there are so many good films still coming out that I had to leave some films I'm very excited about seeing off yeah. my list. Films like uh, The Green Knight. It's not on my list. How can I, I'm super excited about that movie, but I, I couldn't quite bump anything else off. Top Gun 2, you know, is one that I'm excited about, but I, I couldn't bump anything else off my thing here. I'm looking forward to Black Widow. But I can't bump anything off my list to, to make. I, there was a lot of stuff coming, Rob, and I know you got a bunch in your list that are on mine. So that's my top 10. Rob, let's throw it over to you. What do you got? 
Well, first of all, a, a movie that I don't know why I always space this out that it's coming out this year. I, 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 I and I'm, I'm more excited about this movie than you could possibly imagine. And why I left it off my list, I don't know, but that would be Matrix Four. Mm. I'm fascinated by Matrix Four. What is it going to be about? They've been making it for a long time. Uh, I want to see it, uh, and, and I left Top Gun 2 off my list, too. Which, but both those movies, I really could, maybe because they're by the end of the year. I don't know, but number number 10 on my list is a re-release, John, uh, a movie that I've never thought looked good on home video. They've done a 4K remaster, and God bless Rialto Films for putting it back in theaters next month, uh, Paul Verhoeven's Basic Instinct. Yes, indeed. Sharon Stone in her classic role as Catherine Trammell, Michael Douglas. Uh, I cannot wait to see this movie in the theater again. The 4K transfer, it's never looked good on home video. I pre-ordered both the Steelbook and the box set. Why do I need two copies of Basic Instinct? I don't know, but I have two coming, and I can't wait to see this in the theater. And if you've never seen Basic Instinct in the theater, it was nominated for Best Editing at the Academy Awards and Jerry Goldsmith's score. And you have Sharon Stone in all of her glory. What's not to love? Number nine, base, uh, Black Widow. You know, a movie that I really have wanted to see. People are like, ah, it's five years too late. Whatever. Want to see Black Widow. Can't wait to see Black Widow. Why not? <laughs> uh, number, let's see, what was that? Ten, nine, eight. Number eight, John, West Side Story. Steven Spielberg, I've wanted to see him direct a musical since the opening number of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in 1984. He's finally, he's remade, well, I shouldn't say remade, he's doing another version of the famous Broadway show. Uh, the trailer, I thought, just the way it's shot alone, can't wait to see it. Uh, Anson Elgort, or what's, is it Anson? Anson Elgort? Anson Elgort, yep. Elg From I, Baby I, Driver. I think he's, I think he's great. Uh, playing Tony, I can't wait to see this movie. Uh, even the, just that overhead shot of the shadows that's at the end of the trailer, for that alone, I want to see that movie. Now, keeping on that music tip, next on my list is In the Heights. In the Heights. A, a movie that is getting incredibly well-reviewed. Uh, again, I love this kind of a movie. I'm a musical fan. This looks exuberant, joyful. Lin-Manuel Miranda, who can from Hamilton fame, can do no wrong. Why not? Uh, can't wait to see it. Next one on the list is, of course, Shang-Chi, which I've wanted to see for well, my whole life. I was reading Master of Kung Fu when I was a kid. Um, and I and, and my man, Tony Leung, uh, is the Mandarin in this movie, I think. I can't wait to see this film. Uh, I love it. They're finally, you know, Marvel does their different uh, uh, genres. They're finally making a, a foray into martial arts. I'm so there for it. Bring it on. And of course, following that up, a movie that I've wanted to see for a very long time, The Eternals. I've been excited for this movie since it was announced. Marvel's talking about how it was a departure. They're going to cover thousands of years of Marvel Cinematic Universe history. I'm expecting to see a lot of celestial stuff. Uh, I want to see the deviants. Uh, bringing Jack Kirby, they did it with Ragnarok, but bringing Jack Kirby back to the screen uh, with his creation, The Eternals, can't wait. Number three on my list, my man Paul Verhoeven is coming back, John. Benedetta. Benedetta, which is, I guess, based on a true story. He's bringing back one of my favorite forgotten genres of the 1970s, 
lesbian nuns, John. Lesbian <laughs> nuns. There's an entire subgenre of lesbian nun films. And I mean, the woman who's the lead in this is strikingly beautiful, and she's a nun, and she's a lesbian, and she might be very well hearing the word of God. What's not to love? Paul Verhoeven's directing this. For those of you who don't know, Robocop, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, Paul Verhoeven actually wrote a book on Jesus, and he's also been uh, the life of Jesus. He's he's been a, a a lot of his movies are are informed by Catholicism and Catholic doctrine, and I've always loved that about him. He, he even said that Basic Instinct was about the devil, that Catherine Trammell is the devil. So him making a lesbian nun movie, that's a dream come true. So I can't wait to see that. Number two on my list is, of course, No Time to Die. And uh, no, I'm a huge James Bond fan. I, I don't understand why there's a James Bond movie that's been finished for over a year and I haven't seen it. By the way, they just shipped the last of the pieces for my one eighth scale model of the die cast uh, DB five that's in this movie. So I'll be able to have it all built. It's, it's not one sixth, it's one eighth, but man, it's cool. And I'm getting my final pieces so I can finally build the whole thing in honor of this movie. And number one, John gotta go with Dune. Dune, Denis Villeneuve's Dune. You eloquently put it the way uh, it should be put. And uh, for me, uh, any literary-based science fiction movie, uh, I'm so there for it, and I can't wait. I mean, we're getting a Foundation TV series, and we're getting Dune in one year. Classic sci-fi, Isaac Asimov, Frank Herbert, what a year, but Dune is my number one movie, as it was last year, John. I mean, my number one and two movies <laughs> have been the same for two years, which is odd to think about, but there you go. And again, like... Uh, it, it it kind of speaks to it just how packed this rest of the year is because there are a number like, I don't think you had Spider-Man three, even on your list. I don't have a Spielberg movie um, with West side story on my list. I don't have in the Heights on my list. I didn't put top gun two on my list. I didn't put black widow on my list. I didn't put the green Knight on my list. And these are like, and it goes on and on and on. And there's just a lot of great movies still to come. Uh, the devil made me do it. A terrible title, but, you know, the new Conjuring film, looking forward to that. Um, there's just a lot of good stuff to come. And so, guys, the question is for you. You guys have seen us run down a whole bunch of the movies that are still to come. What are some of your most anticipated movies for the rest of the year? Hop on down to the comments, and guys are going to make you do some homework here. Actually list out the 10. Don't just say, don't pull the cup up. Oh, I don't like your list because you didn't include this movie. Well, then which one would you have bumped off? Actually, give me your list of 10. I want to see what all you guys, because I want to see some of the other movies that we didn't have on there as well. So jump down in the comment section below and let us know your list for that. Okay, guys. With that down, we're going to spend the rest of the day now just taking your live comments and questions. Once again, if you want to get a live comment or question on the show, simply use the tip link that's in the description of this video, or you can enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question read here on the show if it's you know appropriate for the show. And of course, you'll be supporting the channel at the same time. All right, let's get over to it, Rob. First up, we got ASM Pools who writes, one of two. Hello, John. Today is my friend's birthday, Justin from Las Vegas. Well, happy birthday, Justin from Las Vegas. I was hoping you can wish him a happy birthday. We listen to your show every day. He also just found out he shares a birthday with his most hated TV character of all time. So I want to wish Justin a happy birthday, and I wanted to wish a happy, fantastic, amazing birthday to the great King Joffrey Baratheon, first of his name, King of the Andals, 
and the first man, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and protector of the realm. Of course, Rob, everybody loved Joffrey. Joffrey was the best. Oh, yeah. Loved him. I still think you could audibly hear. I still remember the episode where he died. I still think you could hear like audibly. I'm not and I'm not joking. I could hear in my neighborhood with the windows (laughs) open, people cheering in different in their various homes. It's like, well, everybody's watching this, apparently. So that was a big one. Anyway, thanks for writing that ASM and happy birthday to your friend, Justin, in Las Vegas, a town I'll be going to very soon, as a matter of fact. All right. Um, ASM accidentally doubled up and put the same one in. No problem, ASM. The Sock writes, RIP Kentaro Minora, the writer of Berserk. Uh, sad he never got to see a proper adaptation of it before he passed. There's many versions that focus on the Golden Age arc, but only the 2018 one goes past it, and I demand compensation for being subjected to that. I'll be honest with you, Sock, I'm not familiar with Berserk. Are you, Rob? Are you familiar with this? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's it's huge, and uh, uh, the character designs are incredible. It's a, you You would like it, I think. All right. All right. Sign me up. Anyway, thanks for sharing that, Sock. All right, next up, Sock also writes, one of two. Uh, You said you're disinterested in the People's Choice Awards because many people only watch a few releases a year. I agree. But if they could verify that they saw X number of movies that year with proof of purchase, like how Rotten Tomatoes does it, would you be more interested? That's an interesting thing because, Rob, this comes up every year around award season. I have zero interest in any fan-voted awards. I have zero interest, whether it's the MTV Movie Awards, because I believe they're fan voted, um, People's Choice, blah, blah. And I get it. Well, John, why don't you like what the people have to say? Because who are the people? You know, I'm sorry, but I don't give any credence to any award show that lets somebody who literally maybe saw five movies this year vote on movie awards. I just have no interest in that. I have no interest in somebody who watched 15 movies this year voting on movie awards. I have no interest in that whatsoever because people generally only go to see movies that interest them. Now, that's it. what the sock is proposing here, Rob, is interesting because, you know, Rotten Tomatoes no longer lets people vote, at least for theatrical movies. You can't vote and, and cast a... Um, a rating for a movie unless Rotten Tomatoes can verify that you saw that movie through their Fandango online ticketing thing. That's interesting. If you were say to work with a Rotten Tomatoes and say, Oh, we allow votes from people who it's verified. They saw 40 movies this year, 40 movies or more this year. If I'm not quite sure how you do that system, Rob, I don't know how you set that up, but I will say this. Theoretically speaking, if you could set up a system where average fans, where it could be verifiably proven that they saw a minimum of X number of films a year, I'll set the number at 40, that you can prove that these fans saw a minimum number of 40 films this year, that would probably warm me up more to the idea of of some fan voted awards. Otherwise I have no interest, but Rob, if they could do something, let me ask you two questions, Rob, if they theoretically could set up that system that they had a verifiable way to let average, you know, fans vote on something. If it could be verified that they saw X number of films, would that warm you up more to phone to fan voted awards? And number two, 
if you could do that, what would you set as the minimum number of films that you would want them to have seen that year to make them eligible to vote? So how do you feel about that? Well, I think it's a good question. I think it can be done, you know, can be verified. However, they'll, they'll figure out some way to, to verify it. But I, I think the minimum, like you have to make people work for it. And I would say 30 movies. Just off the top of my head, you right. have to have seen 30 movies in the year. Uh, that's less than one a week. But it also it also means that you're discerning you're a discerning enough viewer and you've seen enough films that okay you you your 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 opinion carries some semblance of weight and I I I could see that I think that that's um, uh, that I could see being managed. See, I I think I'd want a little bit higher because like thirty is closer to one movie every two weeks. I want the number to be closer to one movie a week. That's I'll set mine at 40. So but we're not far if, that off. Yeah. I just think that if you're, then you're talking almost professional critics, <laughs> you know, and, and I think if you still want to get the average, cause pe I think people who are watching more than like 40 or f even 50 movies a year. And a lot of people do. I mean, obviously we do, but, but I'd still want to get an indicator. Cause the whole point of doing a people's choice award would be to be indicate an indicator of, of what's the average Joe watching? Yeah, and i I wouldn't want the I wouldn't want the um, the awards to 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 be more professional, you know. Where, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I want the meat and potatoes, the man on the street, the woman on the street, what their view is, as opposed to somebody who's a total movie fanatic, because then they're way, not Ar just fans. Arjun in the live chat gives a perfect perfect. Balance, 35. There we go. We've That's officially set the number at 35. All right, let's move on. Thanks for writing that in, Sox. It's an interesting proposal. All right, next up, Ben Rayner writes, Hey, John, did you see the full trailer for the Friends special? I did. What did you think? I'm surprised they were able to get that much done for it. Uh, looks like a lot. Uh, just hoping for a good length and, and the special. Hope one to two hours on max. Who is your favorite friend? Yeah, so Rob, I don't know if you saw. They put out the full trailer now for that Friends reunion special. I saw it. Now, yep. listen, I... I respect that friend show. I thought it was a good show. I thought it was it was ludicrously well written. They made very obviously very memorable characters who a lot of you know the audience got very attached to and it's endured. It's a top four, probably greatest, you know, sitcom of all time. I'm not a major friends head like some people I know, but I've always had a lot of respect for it. I gotta say, Rob, that little trailer they put up made me feel nostalgic and it made me feel like, you know what? I do want to sit down with these guys. I want to sit down and hear them talk about this show. Now I'd be more interested in them actually doing an actual friends reunion mini movie or, you know, limited series or something like that. I'm more interested in that than just them. You know, this is a glorified DVD bonus feature. Really, that's what this is. But I got to tell you, I thought it was good. It felt nostalgic. It felt good. I, I mean, have you had a chance to see it, Rob? What did you think? I well, you know, I saw the it, it, the trailer. Yeah. But it it looks. I watch it. Actually, I watch it twice because there was a report that that uh, Matthew Perry is slurring his words. I'm like, whatever. Um, <laughs> but it made me watch it again. I, you know, John, I, I've told you this before. Uh, I I feel terrible. I've never seen an episode of Friends. Dude, see, I don't, you've never seen it, The Office. You've never seen Friends. I don't think you've ever seen Seinfeld either, have nope. you? They're like, nope. Maybe arguably the three most successful greatest sitcoms of all time. You've never seen a single one of them. Nope. 
That's so crazy because you would love The Office. I yeah, mean, you I, would I, love I, The Office. I mean, I've been watching Ted Lasso. Oh, like that's that. so delightful. That's so um, good. And uh, uh, but yeah, I was just I missed out in the 90s and uh, aughts or whatever. I'm just not I was never much of a sitcom guy. But when I watched I, Friends is such a pop culture phenomenon. I mean, I know about Friends. It's the one with, you know, and I, yeah. I thought I, the idea of bringing those characters back together, you know, it's, I think it's special. I think uh, it's going to mean a lot to a lot of people. I still don't know. Is it an episode? Or is it no, 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 a retrospective no, it's, like show? I said, like I said, it's basically, it is a bigger budget, glorified Blu-ray uh, bonus feature. But yeah, that's that's kind of what I, but it would kind of be cool if they did that, but they, because Friends is only 30 minutes long, so it'd be cool if they did an episode, <laughs> you know, shot an episode, and uh, then it turned into like, so it's like a 90 minute program, you get to watch an episode of them now. Yeah, and then you get to sit down with a uh, roundtable discussion with them. I there were two things done earlier this year during the pandemic that I thought were fantastic. One, Parks and Rec. Do you remember this? They yeah. did a reunion, um, but it was an episode. It was an episode of Parks and Rec with all the actors. All the actors returned, played their character, but true to the pandemic, they were all talking over Zoom. Or right. whatever the name of that technology company in the Parks and Rec universe is. They were all talking virtually, and they did an entire episode of it that way. And they used that to raise funds for Feeding America to help with the with the pandemic crisis. And it was fantastic, and I loved it. Then um, the uh, uh, West Wing did their special. But what they did was they got the whole crew, crew back together, except for the guy, what's his name, John, the one West Wing guy who's passed away, the guy who played the chief of staff. Oh, um, and I'm oh. forgetting his, I think it was John something. Anyway, so since they couldn't get him back, they got the uh, dude from This Is Us to come in and play that role. And what they did was they took one of their classic- John Spencer. John, John Spencer, John. who passed away. Thank you, John Spencer. So what they did was they got the cast back together and they reenacted an episode, but on a stage and they did it as a stage play. Yeah. And they did it as a way to encourage, this was prior to the election and they were using it as a way to encourage people to get out and vote. And it was, and the episode they reenacted was one about the importance of people going out and exercising their rights to vote. And I love that. And I really wish friends would do something similar. I really wish they would do something similar to that, but whatever. I, I did think it looks pretty good. I did think it looks pretty good. All right. Next up. Um, let's see. Where are we at? We are at Jaron Morris writes as bad as Omni man beat the holy hell out of his son. In my opinion, the mental and emotional abuse was worse. Uh, just hearing the truth from his father and hearing how he felt about his mom was the worst. In my opinion, I can always start over and make another kid. Yeah, that. But you know what, Rob? That all that reminded me of when I heard that line in uh, Invincible. All that reminded me of. They totally ripped that line off from. Uh, it feels odd to say his name these days, but an old Bill Cosby special. Um, it, where Bill Cosby's joking about his dad talking to him. I brought you in this world, kid. I'll take you out, and I can make another one that looks just like you. <laughs> and it's like, 
And so that was that was kind of reflected in that uh, in that speech a little bit too, Jaron. But yeah, man, Invincible was great, dude. All right, next up, Jaron also writes. Also, I know anything can happen in the UFC, but anytime I look at the 125 pound women's division flyweight, all I say to myself is, "You will never be champion because I don't see Valentina Shashenko losing." So why the f doesn't Dana want to make a trilogy fight with Amanda? Okay, so for those of you who don't follow UFC at all, you're probably going to tune out for a second. But, but just give me a second. Rob, there are two ridiculously dominating female fighters right now. One is the lioness, Amanda Nunez, who has looked near invincible for the past four years. I mean, she's just looked utterly unstoppable. It's, it's That girl is savage. Like, she went in there against Chris Cyborg and beat the living shit out of her and knocked her out halfway through the first round. I mean, it was just, it was savage. Then... You go down, and so Nunez right now is a two-weight division champion. She's the only UFC fighter, male or female, in history to win, hold, and defend two different titles at the same time. Nobody else has ever done it. Meanwhile, in the weight class down from that is this effing Terminator with human flesh covering her skeleton in Valentina Shashenko. (laughs) There are videos of this girl when she was younger and a little girl. Like, remember there are videos of Habib Nurmagomedov, the greatest fighter of all time, when he was a young boy and his dad was making him wrestle bears? Well, there's something about these former Soviet bloc countries because there's videos of Valentina as a little girl where she is literally, not exaggerating, chopping down trees with her legs where her dad is filming, she's boom, boom, boom. And you see the tree just start to splinter and shatter and fall apart. And like (laughs) this lady is like Joe Rogan puts it best. This lady's a straight up assassin. She is a straight up assassin. Now, Valentina and Amanda Nunez, champions in their respective divisions, they have fought before. Some people thought Valentina actually won one of those fights, but they fought two times before, very, very close fights. Uh, they both, both of them went to Amanda Nunez. A lot of people think Valentina won one of those fights, but there's, there's just nobody else on the planet to fight either of these two. There's just nobody else. And you're asking, why doesn't this seems like the no brainer dream match to make, make a super fight now that they're both champions Make the super fight, uh, Valentina Shashenko versus Amanda Nunez. Make that fight. The problem, though, if you're UFC, is this: one of them will lose. And right now, you've got champions in different divisions that are just seen like the Wayne Gretzky and Michael Jordan of their generations. And if you now make that super fight between them, one of them loses that glitter. Now, they've already fought before, but the stakes weren't as high. and They were close fights and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, I want to see the fight, Rob. I want to see that fight badly. I don't know what it, at what weight they would fight at. I would like to see the, the them fight at Valentina's weight, personally. But it's a, it's a tough one. But all I know, all I know, Jaron, is I want to see that fight, dude. I really do, but I completely understand why the UFC isn't doing it. At least not right now. There's not a lot of upside for them, but... I want to see the fight badly. All right, next up. Uh, Rose Twins 2x2 writes, Hey, John, 
Uh, Q1, have you ever seen, question one, have you ever seen Castlevania or Death, Love, and Robots on Netflix? Thoughts? Question two, one question at a time, guys. Uh, question two, how much uh, further do you think studios can consolidate into single major con conglomerates? We'll take the first one. I have not seen a Love, Death, and Robots. I'm not really a Love, Death, and Robots. Uh, I, it never interested me, Rob. I never watched it. The trailers didn't look all that good. I watched a couple of minutes of one. Wasn't for me. I tuned out. But I know a lot of people have watched it and liked it. I know you did, too. You liked Love, Death, and Robots, did you I not? did, and I, I haven't started the second season, but I can't wait. It looks terrific. Yeah, you thought a lot about it. Now, I have watched the latest season of Castlevania, um, and it's fun. I don't think it was as good as season one. I don't think it was as good as season one. But it was really cool. The whole Beaumont thing at the end and them settling the new village. It was really good. Castlevania is a fun one to watch. The nice thing about Castlevania, Rob, as well, is that it's really short. I mean, season one, if I remember correctly, season one is like four episodes. So you can blast through season one easy. You know, they're short, small, small things are like 20 something minutes an episode. You can get into it pretty quick and get out of it pretty quick, and you can be all caught up. But yeah, I'm a I'm a fan of Castlevania. I can't remember, Rob. Have you been watching Castlevania at all on Netflix? And if so, what did you think? I did. I when I was, was working on Dota Dragon's Blood, I I checked out Castlevania because that was kind of like the gold standard. So I like Castlevania a lot. I'm sorry to see that it's ending. Uh, all right. Next up, we've got. Uh, Brandon, who writes, hey, John, just curious. Uh, you've addressed before why Chris Carr has been missing for so long, but the with with vaccinations picking up more and more and life returning to some semblance of normal. Have you contacted Chris about perhaps coming back to the show soon? Um, it's it's more complicated now. Uh, now, Chris and I were just talking. We were just texting uh, last week, actually, because um, you guys don't know this. Rob, I don't know if you knew this, but. When Chris first started working with me, she was actually not just a co-host on the show. I actually hired her as my personal assistant. Right. And so Chris Carr, for the first while, was working as, number one, my personal assistant, but then also as a co-host for the show at the same time. And one of her jobs as my personal assistant was, Chris Carr can cook. Holy shit. Chris Carr can cook and she loves cooking. So one of her responsibilities was she would come over in the morning. Uh, she would do the show. Then she would go downstairs and she would make uh, mine and Ann's dinner and then, you know, set it in the oven or in the fridge that we could, Ann and I could have for dinner. And every night she did that for us like three days a week. Cause Ann and I were both very busy. And every night that, that Chris came over to cook dinner Ann and I were like, Today's a Chris Chris Carr dinner night. Tonight's a Chris Carr dinner night. We'd be all excited. So it's funny because me and Chris were texting last week, and you know we haven't seen each other in forever. And so she was. We were talking about the, her and her husband Logan. She's got a great husband Logan uh, coming over sometime in the next couple of weeks, and she wants to come over and make dinner for us because she offered on Instagram. She just on Instagram. She said, "I'll come over and make dinner for you guys." What makes it complicated though for her to return to the show, Rob, is that she's an in studio person. And before she was a 15 or 20 minute drive away from me. Now she's an hour drive away from me. So I, I don't know what the status is of Chris Carr coming back to the show at any point. Um, I mean, Aaron makes the drive because she loves doing the show and whatever. 
it, it's a tall order to ask Chris to also make that drive. I don't know, maybe her and Eric and carpool. But when Chris Carr comes, when her and Logan come over to have dinner with me and Ann, we'll talk about it and we'll figure it out. So there's my best answer for that. But oh my God, guys, if Chris Carr ever opens a restaurant, I'm telling you, book your vacation, buy plane tickets, do whatever it is you need to do to go wherever Chris Carr is making food because, oh my God, she's good. She's really, really good. Uh, anyway, uh, next up. Uh, do, 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 do. Okay, can I address this for a second? Some fucking dim-witted moron in the live chat, MK Ultra. Can I, can I just touch on this for a second? This fucking moron in my live chat, um, MK Ultra, it's saying uh, in the live chat, talk about stereotyping females. Jesus, John, I didn't stereotype fucking anybody. Chris Carr's one of her big loves in life is to cook. I had a personal assistant, and one of the things that I put in my job description for personal assistant, Ann and I were having trouble getting our meals together, was somebody to, to help with meals. And Chris Carr is awesome at it, and it's one of her passions in life. And I was simply telling you what this one girl, this one individual I know, what they love to do and what they're really, really good at. Yes, it happened to be cooking, but guess what? So does um, Gordon Ramsay. Is that, is that stereotyping Gordon Ramsay? So get the fuck out of here with that stupid bullshit, moron. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? Sorry, little things trigger me. Little, little things trigger me. Wow. Like, the fucking ignorance by some people is just unbelievable. Anyway, uh, next up. McFly writes, uh, Yesterday, I watched Back to the Future for the millionth time. I'm always surprised at how movie continues to hold up. What is your opinion on what makes fi a film timeless, such as Back to the Future? It's totally an X factor. You know, Rob, th this question has come up. It's like, why is X movie or Y movie timeless? It is an absolute X factor. It, 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 there's no formula to it. You know, every once in a while, a story just gets told that touches us in the right way and is just kind of a timeless kind of thing that will always be relevant. And, you know, the issues in Back to the Future uh, are definitely part of that. But I, I know, Rob, if you had to look at Back to the Future as an individual movie, not what could be formulaic and applied to other films, but what is it about Back to the Future that here we are so many decades later and people still talk about it and remember it so fondly? Well, I, I consider Back to the Future probably as perfect a movie as there ever was because first of all, it delivers on every promise that it makes. Um, it, 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 first of all, it delivers a great science fiction story. It delivers a great story of friendship between Marty and doc Brown. It delivers a familial story with Marty and his parents. It, uh, uh, and it also deals with the very nature of existence and every step of the way that it tells this story, there's no misstep. It juggles all of these elements in this concoction, this perfect souffle that does not deflate ever. And in addition to that, it's funny. And I, I think it fires on all cylinders. And the promises that it makes, the premise, the characters, it delivers on every single one of them. And 36 years later, when you watch that film, it's lost none of its power. It's lost none of its fun. And most importantly, it's not. It's lost none of its entertainment value. And I don't think that it ever will. All right. Next up, we got Jesse writes. 
I know you're a fellow Chicago PD fan. I don't watch a ton of regular television shows, but I do watch Chicago. I don't know why. There's something about that show that really appeals to me. I, I like watching Chicago PD. I don't talk about it much on the show, but I do like that one a lot. Anyway, uh, I know you're a fellow Chicago PD fan, so I was wondering if you've seen this week's episode leading into the season finale. I have. Uh, no spoilers, but man, this was an extremely dark episode for the show. The darkest I've seen in a while. Looking forward to the finale. It was great. By the way, I don't think it's as dark as like last season's season finale. The last season season finale was pretty dark, but Rob, what I loved about this episode, I, I don't think you watch Chicago PD, but it brings up a, an, a, a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A struggle that I think I really love it when it's kind of touched on and addressed and the, the cast, the characters in Chicago PD face the situation. They are desperately trying more you know, to reform how they police and stuff like this. So they want to follow the rules, but they come across a scenario where following the rules means they can't protect somebody. And then there's this philosophical debate it creates within us. The whole spirit of the law is meant to protect people. What happens when the law itself is preventing you from protecting people? And where, how do you navigate that line? The law is to protect people, but the law in this particular unique circumstance is preventing us from protecting somebody who may face harm. And it's, it's great. And Rob, you and I talk about this a lot. I love it when movies or shows put us as audience members in a dilemma and we struggle with, well, what is the right thing to do? And, and this is a show that did that this episode so yeah uh, absolutely jesse i really love the episode and i'm looking forward to seeing what they do in the finale as well okay next up uh we have a childish tycoon who writes have you seen the tv show community i have i clicked play something on netflix it's one of the new features on netflix and it popped up I knew it was something somewhat popular and I decided to watch it and was definitely a special type of show. I am now part of the camp who hopes and a movie happens. Yeah, listen, I, Rob, I was never into community. I watched a few episodes when it was on TV. I'm like, eh, it didn't seem bad, but it just didn't catch me. Then a couple of years ago, Anne started watching it because she's a huge Donald Glover fan. So she decided mm. to go back and start watching community and she just started binging the hell out of it. And so I would sit down and watch some of them with her. And I was like, this is better than I remember. Like Donald Glover, Danny Pudi, like the, the whole cast is like incredible. And I just remember watching this thing and like, this is better than I, like, I still don't put it on the level of parks and rec, the office, or anything like that, but it was much better than I remember. And it's a special, they're still trying to get a movie made of it, Rob. They're still yeah. trying to get a movie made. Uh, have you heard anything about any progress on that? And, and what are your thoughts on that? No, but I mean, you know, obviously I think community was a very innovative show and that was something I, I you know, I heard about it and watched episodes of that and I liked it, you know, I, I for a non sitcom guy like me, I thought it was very amusing. I love the cast, but I could see them doing some kind of a movie, but I haven't, I don't know anything about w whether that's happening or not. All right. Next up, Carlos Sosa writes, Hey, John, uh, looking at the future of Star Wars films, do you think there will be an episode 10 down the road? 1,000% there will be. Uh, do you think the sequel trilogy cast will come back? No, I do not. Uh, should they? 
No, I don't think they should. Also, cannot wait for Rogue Squadron. I hope it's a spectacle to watch. Yeah, I am so stoked about Rogue Squadron. So, Rob, you and I have talked about this before. Listen, doing a movie called Star Wars Episode 10, that's, I mean, it, as you make it decent, that's a billion-dollar film if you make yeah. it decent. It's a billion dollars. Hell, they they did the rise or the uh, the the rise of Skywalker, and it's not a decent film, and it made over a billion dollars. I always laugh whenever I hear people say, uh, "Star Wars is dead." Are you are you fucking serious? They just made a terrible movie in the in the uh, rise of Skywalker, and it still made over a billion dollars. Tell me again how Star Wars fandom is dead. Anyway, um, uh, people are just out of touch. Anyway, um. But yeah, there will be. And I I think what they will probably do is they will change eras again. They'll they'll fast forward in time 10 years or or something like that. Look, I don't know when a Star Wars episode 10 will come. I don't expect one by 2023. But maybe when we start talking 2024, 2025, 2026. But yeah, I, I don't believe if you had $1,000 to put on a bet, I would say you put every dime down on that within the next decade, there will be a Star Wars Episode Ten. I don't think it'll have the prequel cast. I think they'll do a new cast again. Um, but from there, anyway, Rob, what would you say to that? I think they're absolutely going to make a Star Wars ep- Episode Ten at some point. Um, by the way, I would like to point out that today, John, is the 41st anniversary of the release of The Empire Strikes Back. That's right. Today, well, I, well, I thought May 20th was the day. That, no, the May Empire... 21st. Oh, May 21st. I always thought it was May 20th. Okay. No. Okay. Um, and I was there, man. I was at the UA150 Theater at 9 a.m. You know, on this corner of 6th and Blanchard in downtown Seattle. Um, and I was dressed as Darth Vader. I was a pipsqueak-looking Darth Vader. But, um, yeah, uh, but I, they're gonna, of course they're going to make it episode 10. Like, why not? I still remember I was a little kid. My aunt Lenora, my dad's one of my dad's sisters, my aunt Leo, she picked me up and she took me to a movie theater in downtown Hamilton. And we were late. We were late, but she took me to see Empire Strikes Back. And we walked in. So we missed the opening crawl and all that kind of stuff. But we walked in just as the probe droids were dropping out of the Star Destroyer and speeding off towards their different planets. So we, we weren't all that late, but we just lost missed a little bit. So like, ah, uh, yes. All right. Anyway, next up. Uh, Bojack's rights, one of two. Hey, John, I wanted to clarify uh, that the statement about Luke Cage came from the showrunner, uh, Chio uh, Hottery uh, Cooker, with uh, Twitter's account. He was responding to people. Uh, he was responded to people mad that he killed off Cottonmouth. His point was that Cottonmouth was always meant to die. Pardon me. In the story, no matter what, uh, but that it was an unfortunate yet good thing that Mahershala Ali played the character so well. In this case, character was put first. We just killed the actor playing the character too much, um, uh, too much, and was disappointed to see him go. Yeah. So, Rob, this came up yesterday. Um, that some information came out that some people were talking about saying that. You know, they had to kill off Cottonmouth halfway through Luke Cage season one because Mahershala Ali was only contracted to play so many characters, so many, so many episodes, right? To which my response was, then that's a great example of why you just recast. You don't build your characters and your story around an actor. You change out the actor if you have to. The character and the story should come first. Uh, Then, uh, you know, what what Bojack's saying here, actually what he was really kind of trying to say is that 
Cottonmouth was always meant to die halfway through the season, which to me is a very significant thing because I was really digging Luke Cage until Cottonmouth wasn't in the show anymore. And once Cottonmouth wasn't in the show anymore, I did not like the second half of Luke Cage and I didn't like season two of Luke Cage. There was the odd decent episode, but, and I love the guy, I, I keep forgetting the guy's name who played Luke Cage, but he was, he's great. Matt he's, Coulter. Oh God, he's great. Mike Coulter. Mike, Mike, Mike Coulter. Mike Coulter. He was, like, fantastic as that. But it just wasn't all that good, and it was too bad not to see that uh, see him back. So, I don't know. Maybe he's got a point. Maybe people only got mad. Maybe if Cottonmouth wasn't performed so well by Mahershala Ali, nobody would have cared that he left. But I, I thought, honestly, I felt like the show went off a cliff after he wasn't there anymore. How did you feel about that? I, well, I did, too. I mean, he was such a strong character that the second half of the season seemed a bit anticlimactic. And I was a huge fan of that show. I really liked Coulter as as Luke Cage. I thought, what a handsome, strapping man! I could follow him anywhere. And then, I yeah, I just thought the show lost steam. Rob, there are, um, and I say this as you know, as uh, boringly straight heterosexual as I possibly can. But <laughs> there are some men. There are, there are some men who are just so ridiculously handsome that it just. Oh, yeah freaking pisses me off it just pisses me off maybe it's a it triggers some sense of inadequacy maybe it's just pure jealousy but <laughs> fuck mike coulter <laughs> that dude he is definitely uh, he is definitely one of the more handsome people i've ever seen in my life that dude is so good looking it's offensive yeah. and, like it, and, it offends me and i mean that guy you know when he was he was throwing Kristen Ritter around in their in their uh and their super power like, super powered sex scene <laughs> what a lucky guy that Mike Coulter is i mean can you imagine being a guy like that looking like him you could probably walk into any room anywhere in the world and just be like hi and get anything you want <laughs> uh i i mean another guy like that somebody somebody mentioned in the live chat like Jason Momoa is also that here's a yeah he is he is that way here's a Mike Coulter and Jason Momoa together but I remember, uh, I remember when I went to, uh, I was at the Aqua, not Aquaman. I was at the Conan the Barbarian premiere, Rob. The Conan Barbarian premiere. And at the after party, Ann and I are walking around and we bump into Jason Momoa. And I, you know, introduced myself because I was going to be interviewing him the next day. Sure. And I said, this is my wife, Ann. And this dude, I, mean, I told us, he like takes her hand. He goes, well, hello there. It's just the way Momoa said it. I'm like, F this guy. <laughs> just like completely yeah. F this guy. Anyway, just, there's just a club, Rob, of guys who are so ridiculously good looking, I just find it offensive. Okay, and Mike Coulter is one of those dudes. All right, next up, uh, James L.H. writes, Hey, John, I mentioned earlier going back to Cineworld. I neglected to say the timing was good as I had my second vaccination a week ago. Excellent. I still wear a mask. Well said, John, on Thursday's show. To me, it's uh, it's responsible. There are many here that haven't had a first vaccination yet. Yeah, so, um, Rob, what happened the other day, somebody said, wanted to write in and say, because, you know, I had mentioned that, yeah, when, when, when I go back to theaters, I think it's, it's still the right thing to wear masks back at the theater and things like that and blah, blah, blah. And somebody wrote in and said, I disagree with your position, uh, the position you take on mask wearing, you know, it's a blah, 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 blah. And I said, look, I don't really care what you think about my personal position on wearing masks. This is not a mask wearing 
I'm not, and I'm no expert on the pandemic, but I do know this. And Rob, I want to know if you have a counter to this or not. But I said, look, I'm fully vaccinated. You know, Ann and I are going, Ann and I are both fully vaccinated. We're going to Disneyland this weekend. This is going to be our first time going back to Disneyland forever. We're going out for dinner tonight. I'm planning my my first Vegas trip in forever in the next uh, in the next month or so. Like I'm I'm looking forward to kind of getting back. I've I've started going to play a little bit of poker again because I am fully vaccinated. But Rob, I know that there are still a lot of people who are um, have some trepidation about going back to the movie theaters right now. They still feel a little bit nervous about it. I know some some friends of mine are going to one or two movies, but it's only because they have some strict guidelines in place. And I said, look, when I talk about, I still think it's important to wear a mask going into a movie theater. It's not for me. I know I'm vaccinated. I'm good. I So I'm not worried about that. It's just basic human courtesy for the people around me. And if me doing something as little and as effortless and as insignificant as putting a mask on during a movie, if me doing that little insignificant thing is going to make somebody else feel more comfortable about being in a movie theater, then I think it's just basic human decency and basic human uh, responsibility and basic human consideration to do that. Now, you don't have to agree but if, you know, the, the person asked me, was asking my position on it, that's my position on it. I'm fully vaxxed. I'm looking forward to a day that, Rob, may not be that far away when none of us even have to worry about this anymore. But for now, if I can help somebody feel more comfortable about coming to the movies and feeling more comfortable while we're there simply by me doing the little thing of putting on a mask, then that's what I'm going to do. And I don't give a shit if anybody agrees or disagrees with my position on that. That's my personal thing. But I don't know. That's my take. Rob, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, uh, the idea of not wearing a mask right now, uh, I think, is inane. Because we've seen what happened with the New York Yankees. Yeah. You had had nine cases of COVID-19 in fully vaccinated people. Now, they were asymptomatic. They'd been vaccinated, but they were asymptomatic. But that doesn't mean they can't not spread the disease to other people. And and I think that right now we're in a situation where they didn't get sick. They're asymptomatic, but they're still carriers of that virus. Yes. And and it's like that to me is that's proof positive why we should still be wearing masks in public. I mean, yeah, they want to take they want to take um uh, the, I think the mask mandate ends in, in California on June 15th. My, uh, Elizabeth's mother is in her seventies and Elizabeth's mother's husband is in his mid eighties. Now I am not, they're also vaccinated, but I, I don't want to take the chance, you know? And I think that there's, it's no skin off my shoulder to wear a mask out in public. It's not a political statement. It's just like you said, common courtesy. And, and I, we're not out of the woods yet. You know, it's people act like, oh, it's all gone. It is not gone. It is going to be a slow burn as this thing. I mean, look what's happening in India. Look what's happening in Brazil. And if there's right now, you know, if I have to wear a mask out in public for the next six months, I have no problem with that. None at all. It's no skin off my shoulders. I've now seen two movies. I wore a mask both times, even though I'm vaccinated. Not necessarily for me, 
But if I was asymptomatic and didn't know it because I'm vaccinated and I were to cough and somebody sitting next to me wasn't and they caught it, that would be on me. Yeah, it's just and it would be something I could have prevented and didn't. It's still just a little bit early. I mean, to yeah. me, it's like some somebody wrote this into me and it's a good, to me, it's a good analogy that said it's like, look, you jumped out of the plane and we knew we had to wear the parachute. But just because we see the end maybe being in sight, that's like saying, oh, I'm only a thousand feet off the ground. Like I jumped out of the plane at twenty five thousand feet and now I'm only a thousand feet off the ground. And I'm good. OK, I'm just going to take off the parachute now. Like, no, we haven't touched ground yet. Like, just, I don't know. I, I just, I would just like to see people in our culture having a little bit more consideration for the other people around them. That, well, I that, think that, that's all I think. Yeah. yeah. And also, I mean, to me, it's, it's not a political issue. It's a public health issue. Yes. And, and right now, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. What's wrong? I go into the grocery store. I wear a mask. I don't care. You know, I, I can go into a theater. We, when we went and saw fast nine, people wore masks. Who cares? Yeah. yeah. I mean, let's, we'll get there. We'll get there. And maybe we'll get there sooner rather than later. Just, we're just not there yet. Anyway, uh, next up, James LH writes, uh, John, you mentioned that Rob is a night owl. Rob is a night owl. Uh, I'm the same as Rob, but I'm reminded of a show I enjoyed with an actor I've always liked, Gary Cole as Jack Killian, the Midnight Caller, uh, with the talented uh, my Cletty Williamson, Forrest Gump Con Air, ended in May of 1991. I am not familiar with The Midnight Caller. Rob, are you familiar with this? Oh, yeah. No, I used to love that show. What was you it know, about? It, what was the basic it, idea? Well, it's, it, you know, you had a radio DJ that ends up getting in, involved in shenanigans, you know, and, and uh, it, it was good. I liked it. All right. Next up, Sam it Weiser. Was, was that, Rob? I think they made it because of, at the time, Oliver Stone made a movie called Talk Radio that yes, was based on I Eric that. Bogosian's play, and I always got the idea that it all came out of that. Uh, could have been. All right, next up, Sam Weiser Gamgee writes, Hey guys, I agree characters can always be recast. Case in point, Connery quits Bond, enter George Lazenby for uh, one of the greatest one-offs in film history, thanks to a great script, uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, is the best Bond film ever made, exit Lazenby, hello Sean Connery again. Actually, you know, Rob, that's true. The Bond franchise is a great example of how you can recast characters and move them on. Now, it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison, but, you know, there. Are, I'm sure there were people in the day saying, nobody can be James Bond except Sean Connery. And I'm sure there were people said, nobody can be James Bond except for George Lazenby. And nobody can be Bond except for uh, Pierce Brosnan. And nobody can be Bond other than Roger Moore. And yet, they always do. They swap the character out, they put in a new actor, and we all adjust and we all move forward. And, and the James Bond franchise is probably one of the best examples of them. Because, Rob, I, I think every Bond has brought something to that character, whether it's Connery or Moore or Lazenby or, or Brosnan or Daniel Craig. Um, I think they've all brought something to it. And I think the new actor who will play it later on will do it too. So I think that's a, a great... Why, Rob, have they been so successful? Because, you know, they stumbled a bit with Batman once or twice. Like, I like Val Kilmer, but, you know, he wasn't the best choice to play Batman, maybe, and things like that. But why has J James Bond been able to do that with this character and recast so successfully over the years? I mean, I think that's a that's a really good question. But I, I have a feeling that it has something to do with the fact that James Bond is reinvented for different eras. Yeah, that's true. 
you know, like the the 60s, the Cold War, Sean Connery Bond was a, obviously there was a certain way of being. It was a Mad Men era. You know, we still had you were just coming off of like, there was the Korean War, the, the 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 space race, the Soviets, all that. But then when you get into the 70s era, it was a different generation, the me generation. And you had like black exploitation movies and you had martial arts films. So you ended up having Live and Let Die and then Man with the Golden Gun. And then we got into like when you replaced with um, uh, Timothy Dalton, it was a different era. It was post AIDS and and he was more of a even though he's more of a badass, but he was also more of a moral bond, not as amoral. And so I, I do think that because the Bond franchise is so long running that there's been that opportunity. But if you don't have the different eras, different, literally different decades, I think it's harder to recast. Uh, and by the way, I just want to say Hardik Dave sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thanks, Hardik. Appreciate that, man. All right. Uh, let's move on here. Next up, uh, Aventium writes, crazy facetious theory. They aren't going to recast T'Challa because Bozeman is coming back to reprise his role. Before he died, he and Coogler secretly filmed all of his scenes to be edited in or, or they'll use CGI Bozeman because screw taste and respect. Well, I mean, talk about the the uh, the tinfoil hat rumor mill thing. I've seen this one around a lot. Now, first of all, no. Kevin Feige was always, already very, very clear that they're not going to CGI Chadwick Bozeman. Um, so that can be taken right off the table. Uh, they're not going to do that. And I think that's probably uh, the right choice. Um. As far as they filmed, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. <laughs> they they didn't uh, take Chadwick Boseman in a very deteriorated physical state. Because you could see it in Ma Rainey as well, Rob. Like physically, you yeah. could even see it in the uh, To Five Bloods. You could even yep. see it in that movie. He was no longer physically the guy we remembered him as. He was still obviously amazing in Ma Rainey and amazing in The Five Bloods as well. But they didn't take him and force him in front of green screen to act out an entire movie. And then they're going to try to make that movie by dropping him in green screen rise into all the scenes. I mean, no, that's, they just, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. Now, I'm, I'm not saying, Rob, there, there, there may not be something. I mean, I, 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 there probably won't be anything at all. But I'm not saying there's not the possibility of something. But this notion that, because Rob, you'd be surprised. I'm seeing more and more people online actually believing that. Nope, Chadwick Boseman is going to be starring in this. That they, they were filmed this whole thing beforehand, and that is obviously just not the case. By the way, Micro saying sends in a super chat badge as well in the live chat. Thanks, man. I don't know, Rob. What's how? How do you respond to that and that idea? Well, that's not how movies work. <laughs> you know, they don't just go shoot somebody's scenes and throw them in that you can't, you know, movie scheduling, movie budgeting is a very complex process and they wouldn't just do that. You don't just film part of a movie. Well, I mean, I guess you can, but not a movie like a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Just that's not how it works. And look what happens when they try to do something like that. Like, look at the the last the rise of Skywalker, right? Instead of recasting, or not, John, do we have to? Yeah, do we have to go there? But instead of doing the smart, best thing, which was recast the role of Princess Leia, they instead decided to take recycled old footage from previous movies that they had shot, and like just unused footage that they didn't use for the first two movies, 
and will just write scenes around those and kind of shoehorn her into the movie. And the result was disastrous. None of the scenes that they used that old Carrie Fisher footage in felt natural. None of it actually flowed. It always felt awkward. I I respect that they were trying to honor Carrie Fisher doing it that way, but it would have been much more honoring to Carrie Fisher and the character that she spent a lifetime portraying had they recasted and finished off that character properly. And the result was disastrous. And I think, and she wasn't even the main character of the movie. Now you try to imagine doing that with the main character of the movie. And it would just be, I think it would be an unmitigated mess. Anyway, uh, thanks for writing that in, Aventium. Next up, we got uh, Fast Fan writes, Hey, John, I love the Fast and Furious franchise, and I recognize the stretching of reality expanding as the series continued, but do you think that Hobbs and Shaw caused Fast 9 to go to the next level? I wasn't a fan of the spinoff and noticed uh, direction and noticed the direction it went. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I really enjoyed Hobbs and Shaw. I had a blast with Hobbs and Shaw. Hobbs and Shaw, to me, was a good representation of, Rob, right from Fast 5 through Fast 8, the Fast and the Furious franchise has more kind of embraced their identity change, that they do embrace the ridiculousness a bit. And they've always pushed it a little bit more and more and more. But still, you know, I love Fast 6 and I love Fast 7 and I enjoyed Fast 8 and I really enjoyed Hobbs versus Shaw. But again, we can't go into views. By the way, I just got an email uh, from the folks over at Universal who are now just letting me know that instead of the review embargo being in mid-June, we can fully review the movie now on May 25th. So on Tuesday, we can do a full review. So uh, again, just to highlight what I said in my tweet, this, this fast movie took that embracing the ridiculousness and just said, well, instead of embracing ridiculousness, let's just make the whole thing just pure ridiculousness. And there is a difference. And it's hard, Rob, to explain what the difference is between a movie that embraces the ridiculousness versus a movie saying, let's just be the ridiculousness. It's hard to explain what that difference is without sitting down and watching the movie that really examples that. And that is Fast 9. And that's why it's the first Fast and the Furious movie since 3 that I haven't liked. Um, And we'll talk about that more in thing. But Rob, do do you think maybe Hobbs and Shaw was the movie that pushed it over the edge? Or do you think that was the trajectory it was on anyway? No, I think that's probably a good bet. I mean, what I don't understand is up through like Fast Five, I thought the formula was pretty great, you know, and 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 keeping the the uh, again, I was I was talking about this on my own channel, how action movies, they work. The action works because we understand what what would like if you're in a car driving fast on the freeway at 100 miles an hour with traffic weaving in and out of traffic we as human beings know what that's like so when you watch great car chases that have a semblance of reality the reality that we understand makes it work that's why we love we find action scenes exhilarating but once you untether the action scenes from reality if you're watching cars do things like drive up a rope bridge that's collapsing so there's no tension on the rope bridge, you know that the car would never be able to finish that journey up the rope bridge. It would have fallen into the sea or whatever. But when you watch a car complete that journey, you're like immediately, you think to yourself, well, that doesn't work. 
where now I'm watching a cartoon. And when, if you're watching a cartoon, then the action scenes cease to, you, you know, they're not real anymore. So the exhilaration that you feel when you watch a really well done action scene sort of goes away. And one of the things I loved about the Fast and the Furious franchise as it began, even like Tokyo Drift, the drifting scenes in Tokyo Drift, when they're actually in a parking garage and they're spinning around sideways, drifting up that parking garage, that's really hard to do. So it, you look at it and go, man, that's freaking awesome. And, and there's the real danger there, even though you're just in a parking garage drifting up a, a, an on-ramp. Well, now all the things that I liked about the action in those movies has gone away because in fast five, they have a great train heist scene where they steal these cars from a moving train. It's set up. It's awesome. And what you watch is not something that couldn't happen. It's something that could happen if you were insane enough to pull it off. And they are. And that's why it was. And then they drive off cliffs and and then they jump out of the car when they're in midair and the car lands in the water. I mean, they clearly did that for real. And that's what makes it fun. Well, in this new Fast 9 movie, none of the action feels real. It's all ridiculous. And when it's all ridiculous, I'm like, why am I watching this? Why? Yeah. Uh, anyway, Rob, on that note, uh, we've uh, we've held you longer than we should, obviously. But anyway, dude, thanks for another great week. I hope you have great a great week. weekend in front of yourself, my friend. We'll look forward to seeing you out here because you and I just physically saw each other. For the first time in a year. Since like May. Yeah, in a year. Last time Because we, we just went to go see Fast 9 together. It was the first time we were actually together at the same place, which was when I had dinner earlier. But uh, you'll be coming out to the housewarming party here in a couple yep. of weeks as well. So it's going to be good to have you here for that as well. Anyway, Rob, thanks for being here this week. We'll see you again on Monday. But in the meantime, where can people follow you and your adventures online? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett. Find me on my own YouTube channel, Rob Observations, or find me on Twitter at uh, Burnett RM. All right, dude, thanks a lot for being here. We'll talk to you again on Monday, man. Have a good one. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Okay, let's keep on going, guys. We've still got about 20 minutes, so let's get to more of your questions. We keep things going here with BK Dan, who writes, uh, John, Michael Ironside was also in Stargate SG-1 Season 9. Uh, Sevis, a one-off good guy pretending to be a bad guy, he really sold it. I don't remember that. Now, granted, I didn't watch Stargate SG-1 five times through. I mean, I, I really like a Stargate SG-1, but I don't remember Michael Ironside rolling that. But yeah, dude, I have I have really loved that guy ever since that original V miniseries. Well, he wasn't in the original number of episodes. We came later, but I, I loved him ever since V. I really have. And by the way, uh, Kung Fu Hot Dog sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Kung Fu. All right, next up, we've got um, Born Geek writes, Hey, John, the Bourne franchise is a favorite of mine. Do you know if there are any plans to continue the series and will they ever do a crossover with Aaron Cross slash Jeremy Renner's character? Hopefully, uh, hopeful to see some movement on this. You know, it. you got to remember, like, I think it was like Bourne 3 was supposed to be the final one. And they then they did the one with Jeremy Renner and then they did another one with Matt Damon where it was like Bourne versus a Facebook kind of company and that born movie was bad i mean it was a that was a bad movie and by the way uh also uh in the super chat ron frazier sends in a uh, ten dollar super chat badge in the live chat thank you for that ron appreciate that dude um that one was bad now there had been talks ever since about doing a born movie where you have the jeremy renner and the the uh matt damon characters together but it's never heard anything come of it now i remember hearing about 
a year ago that Matt Damon said that, you know, if, if Paul Greengrass has an idea and if they could get together and do something, he might be up for it. But, you know, the last one didn't do great. And as a matter of fact, what was born, um, what was that one called again? It was called The Born Legacy. Is that the was that what it was? The Born Legacy? So Born uh Legacy. I don't think it did great at the box office. It didn't even make 300 million worldwide. It made what did it make? It made a grand total of 276 million dollars worldwide. Uh which is not great on a 125 million dollar budget. That's not the best uh the best, best results. So I, I don't know. I would say this. I think it is still possible that we get another born movie, but I don't think likely possible. Yes. Likely. No. Um, but we'll, we'll see where they go. But I think that last one is the last one. All right. Next up. Russell Amador writes, Hey, John, I finally got around to watching psycho, uh, psycho Gorman. I still got to see that, uh, on shutter. And this was, well, awesome. It's definitely not for everybody, but the dynamic between the kids and uh, and PG, or Psycho Gorman, uh, was so good, worth a watch if this type of thing interests you. I'll tell you what, man, I was interested in the Psycho Gorman the first time I saw the trailer. I mean, it does look utterly ridiculous, but the notion of it is actually also pretty interesting, and the character looks kind of cool, and I, it's, I love that it's kind of a lower-budget thing as well. So I'm I'm going to check it out. I'm going to check it out. And by the way, Andrew Williams also sends in like a $10 super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate that, my friend. Um, all right. Next up, uh, we've got, that was Russell Amador, I think. Yes. Next up, we've got My Comic Planet, who writes, one of four. Hey, John. So I've noticed a disturbing trend lately hitting YouTubers. Just two days ago, Andy, Andy Signora got his YouTube channel shut down for videos he posted 12 years ago. And yesterday, Greg Alba, a real reject, shared a similar issue, but even more disturbing. He said YouTube threatened to give him a strike for a video he had already deleted. Yeah, I, I saw Greg's thing on that. Um, they told him that even if a video has been deleted for years, that uh, that video can still be reviewed at any time and can still put your channel at risk of shutdown. Uh, I'm also a content creator that has a Google AdSense account, so I know how brutal Google can be when it comes to this stuff. But going back and pulling random deleted videos for review sounds shady and just another thing YouTubers have to stress over. What do you what do you and Rob, Rob, who you just missed, uh, what do you and Rob think about this? Looks like Google's uh, review robots are currently on a rampage. And do you have any worries of YouTube doing the same with your older slash de deleted videos? Very scary. All right. Thanks a lot for writing that in Comic Planet. And yeah, listen, there is... Um, let me see if I can just get this right. There is a, a problem that YouTube faces, okay? YouTube, I understand that YouTube is in a tough spot, okay? YouTube is in a tough spot. And that stops, a tough spot um, is that they have this platform that they are trying to make work. They've got this platform that they are trying to make um, profitable, that advertisers can come in and that copyright owners 
don't feel freaked out by YouTube being a, a breeding ground for people violating copyright. So I get that YouTube has to walk this fine line in being as creator-friendly as possible, but also making sure that advertisers feel good about putting their advertising dollars into YouTube because that benefits creators. And also they have to be very careful about not getting, you know, the crap suit out of them by copyright owners because YouTubers using copyright violations. And so I respect that YouTube finds themselves in a very precarious situation. And if you violate those terms, then you're at risk of losing your channel. A very interesting situation came up with Greg Alba the other day, of course, from The Real Rejects. Greg has been on my show. Greg is also in my, uh, he's in my documentary. But Greg was reporting that he had a chat with a YouTube, um, uh, a YouTube support analyst and basically said, yes, when you delete a video from your YouTube channel, it's still on the YouTube server and YouTube can still review old videos that you've deleted and don't even have on your channel anymore. And you could get a content strike for videos that you've deleted maybe years ago. And I admit and agree that on its surface, that sounds draconian at best and just shady as F at worst. But I also, to a degree, to a degree, I understand what YouTube is doing here because they are trying, I think YouTube is trying to send a very strong message that, listen, we take copyright violation and we take our community guidelines very, very seriously because we have to protect our space from the copyright owners and from the advertisers. We want to make sure that money keeps coming in so we can pay our creators as well. That we take it so seriously that you don't just get to make a video filled with copyright violations and violating our community policies and go, oh, it's okay, I just deleted it. No, you can still be slapped on the wrist for it if you break our rules by upload. Because once you upload that video, you have then broken the rules. Again, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, right? Okay, I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Don't, don't think this is John Campia's position on this. I'm just playing devil's advocate. So... From YouTube's points of view, they're like, listen, once you upload that video filled with copyright violations or violations of our community guidelines, you have then broken the rules. It doesn't get undone when you delete the video. You've already crossed the line. And by crossing the line and uploading that video, you could theoretically be subject to a copyright violation or whatever, even on videos you've deleted. Now, listen, I'm not saying I agree with what they're doing. I'm not saying this is necessarily the right approach. All I'm saying is I do get where they're coming from. Even if I disagree, I do get where they're coming from a little bit because listen, at the end of the day, YouTube is a free service. YouTube at the end of the day doesn't owe us anything. It is a free service that we get to use to upload videos to and serve up to an audience and have YouTube even does all the work to bring advertisers to us so we can make some advertising revenue. They do all the work and we pay them nothing. They take a cut of the advertising revenue, but still that's their clients, not our clients. So I, 
again, I don't agree with it, but I kind of see where they're coming from. I don't know. I'm sure they'll probably look at this situation a little closer and uh, and probably come up with a better policy. But yeah, it's it's an interesting situation. I, I watched Greg's video with great interest. Uh, absolutely with great interest on that. All right, thanks for writing that in my comic plan. It's going to be interesting to see where things go on that. All right, next up, we've got, um, uh, that was already, yeah, we already did that. All right, NGF Mike writes, hey, John, and maybe Rob, who's not here right now, with Supergirl and Black Lightning ending their runs, the Flash more than likely also nearing its end, but not official, but come on, no Cisco, no show, and the HBO Max deals they have with Superman and Lois, Stargirl and Batwoman, um, over under 30%, CW slowly phases the DC universe out and the remaining shows become HBO Max originals. I personally think Superman and Lois and Stargirl fit better on HBO Max than the CW and Batwoman, eh, just end it. Thanks and bring on the filthy. There's been a lot of people that think things are heading in that direction with HBO Max. There's, there's a very, very strong feeling uh, uh, out there with a lot of people that HBO Max is going to ultimately be the home for all the DC stuff and that they'll probably eventually pull. And you're right. Their Hallmark shows are either over or nearing their end, right? Arrow is already gone. Flash, I have a hard time believing next season isn't its last. I I, I really think next season is going to be its last. I mean, you can already feel that's kind of run out of steam, not to mention they're losing Cisco uh, next year. They're losing the actor who played... Um, uh, uh, Wells, he's gone as well. There's just no point in, in doing the show anymore after that. Uh, by the way, Simon sends in a super chat badge in the live chat. Thank you, Simon. Um, so I think, it, yeah, over, I will take over 30. I'm not going to say 70%. I'm not going to say 80%, but I will take over 30% that within by 2025, any DC shows will be on HBO, HBO Max, or whatever Discovery renames it. Um, and not on CW anymore. So that's my guess. We'll see. We'll see where they go with that. All right, next up. Uh, Rick Squire writes, John, when in Vegas, what are your favorite things to do off the strip? I love Fremont Street. Yeah, Ann and I will go to Fremont Street like twice a year. We don't go every time we go to Vegas. Like Normally when we go to Vegas, we go to, to the strip. We don't normally go to downtown Vegas. But at least twice a year, we'll go down to Fremont Street. That's that's a hell of an experience with the whole roof over the street and the light show and everything. It's it's pretty cool. So we do that about twice a year. Uh, as I love the vintage neon lights, I also discovered the Neon Museum, which has neon lights from older casinos. The Mobs Museum is good, too. Listen, I'll be honest with you. Me, myself, when I go to Vegas, I go to do two things, man. I go to play poker. And I go to eat in some great restaurants. That's, and, and then Anne, she shares one of those. Anne goes to eat in great restaurants with me, but she goes to hang out in the pools and go shop and take advantage of the shopping and just relax. So 90% of the time that we spend in Vegas is just on the strip. 70% of my time in Vegas is sit, sitting at a poker table. Uh, 30% of the time is sitting in a great restaurant with my wife. Uh, I don't do a lot of the other great stuff there is to do in Vegas. There's so much to do in Vegas. And, and we go to a live show once. We'll go to live shows once in a while. We'll go to live shows. Um, we'll go to strip clubs. We'll do whatever. But uh, 70% of my time is spent playing poker because that's I just love playing poker. And I love playing poker in Vegas. So, you know, 
it's a really, really good time for me. Um, so yeah, but there is so much else to do in Vegas. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, there is so much else to do in Vegas, uh, besides the great live shows, which I have done, uh, and, and, uh, and I will do a live show two or three times a year. Uh, there's a lot of great things to do, but for Anne, it's mostly the shopping, the food and the pools. For me, it is the food and it is poker. So yeah, uh, they should totally move Comic-Con there. Anyway, that, that, that's me. All right. Next up. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, Zolax's daughter writes, Hey John, love your show. Thank you so much. Have you seen the Nevers finale yet? I have not watched the finale yet. No, Anne and I are still, we're like one episode behind on Handmaid's Tale and we are one episode behind on the Nevers. So I have not seen that yet. It's a great show and is awesome. Cameo in episode six, which explains the character of True seems so familiar. What do you think? So again, I have not watched it. We've been talking about the Nevers a little bit um, lately on the show. The Nevers, again, it is not fashionable to say you like the nevers. I understand. It's not fashionable to to talk positively about the nevers. And I wasn't super excited about the show either. I believe it is quite good. You know, and, and me and our friend Ryan, you know, on the night it debuted, we we were playing some games. We thought, you know what? Let's watch the nevers. The nevers is on. Let's watch it. Okay. Let's check it out. See if it's any good. And we got hooked on the show. And, and I got hooked on it. And um, we've been watching it ever since. And again, I'm just one, one episode behind right now. But um, it's it's really good. Now, I, I haven't seen the finale yet. But like to me, everything about the individual characters are great. The mythology is great. The mystery of like what the hell is with that alien ship and in the air and blah, blah, blah. Like all that stuff is just so well done. I find the the dialogue is fun. The, the when they have action, the action's really good. Again, I love the characters. It's a really good show. And again, I know it's not fashionable to say that. I know the cool thing is to hate on anything Joss Whedon right now, but it's a really good show. It's really great. Anyway, that's just my kind of take on it. All right, next up. Um, let's see, where are we at? Next one up is, uh, where are we? We are at, ah, we are at Cap and the Winter Sidekick. Um, Cap and the Winter Sidekick writes, being we are in the golden age of TV shows with amazing production, CGI, and storytelling, which one TV show would you binge uh, in a theater instead of on TV? For me, many, The Mandalorian or Falcon and the Winter Soldier are at the top of my list. Uh, Bucky rocks. Um, Not Mandalorian. Oddly enough, as you guys know, I love Mandalorian, love Mandalorian, but no Mandalorian. It doesn't feel like a big screen experience. There are a couple of moments in Mandalorian that feel like big screen experiences, but honestly, most of Mandalorian, it feels like a TV show. And I say that in all the best way possible. I mean that in the best way possible. But it does feel very much like a TV show. Like very, very few scenes in Mandalorian felt like it needed to be a big screen experience, right? So I, I mean, Game of Thrones is one I could probably binge watch on on the big screen. It felt very, very cinematic and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not sure. It's a good question. I'd have to think about it a little bit more. Um, but again, other than Game of Thrones, I can't think of one right off the top of my head. Maybe Battlestar Galactica. Uh, that might be one. 
but uh, yeah, but that's a great question, man. I haven't given a lot of thought to it, but that is an excellent question. All right, next up, we've got Ryan G who writes, Hey, John. I like it when you said uh, papers, please. That was that was good, but bad. LOL. Love your show and have a great weekend. Ryan G. Papers. Give us your papers. Again, that's the I, I don't I can't do a, you know, a German Nazi imitation. I just can't do it. Where are your papers? Yes. Mm. I can't. That was just terrible, terrible impersonation. Terrible impersonation. Right. All right. Thanks for that, man. Hope you have a great weekend, too. All right, Mr. Intellectual writes, uh, Sir Campy, I've tried to alert the community for, but have you seen the article from Forbes? F9 made almost $10 million in midnight previews. I, I, I like you, I'm skeptical, skeptical of China, but uh, this is the case. The Chinese film industry is intent on destroying Hollywood. Um, I don't know what you mean by that, but no, as of right now, I've not read a, a Forbes article on the Fast 9 situation. If any of you guys have... Um, a link to that particular article. I'd love to see it, but I, I have not. Uh, I've not seen that article. Again, listen. When I talk about my dubiousness of Chinese box office, I only mean that exclusively for how chi- the Chinese government reports the box office for Chinese original movies, right? Because you see, like. Oh, the number one movie of the world is such and such Chinese movie that nobody's ever heard of, but it's made $2 billion or made $1.1 billion or made $800 million in its opening weekend. And I'm like, hmm. I, again, I have no proof. I have no evidence. I am just admitting that I feel extremely dubious about China's box office reporting when it comes to Chinese movies playing exclusively in China. I am very, very dubious about the numbers they report. Now, I have no reason to doubt any of their reporting for the North American films. I, I've never felt any reason to doubt their their uh, uh, anything lacking that. I just kind of doubt their reporting on their own movies. And again, I it has to be noted. I have no evidence of this. I have no proof that we should not trust their numbers. I'm just saying I feel extremely skeptical about it. But I also admit that I don't have a foundation for that. It's just I feel very awkward about it. All right. Thanks for that, man. All right. Next up, we got Tristan Thorpe who writes, I'm personally not looking forward to seeing the Injustice animated movie, given that I feel DC's most recent animated movies have been hot garbage with a few exceptions. Uh, Also, couldn't agree more with the prequel uh, books. Honestly, Injustice may be my favorite DC story of the last decade because of how chaotic and personal it gets. Listen, Tristan, a couple things to, to first of all, I'm compl- you're on the same boat as me completely. I think all the DC and frankly, the Marvel animated straight to home video stuff is absolute garbage. There are a few exceptions. There are a few exceptions. I've covered those before. Um, and Injustice Gods Among Us is one of the best comic book stories I've ever read. Certainly one of the best in the last five to 10 years. Um, It is wonderfully done, like beautifully, wonderfully done. So the reason I hold out hope for this Injustice Gods Among Us animated movie is because if they can do it the way that the Dark Knight Returns animated movie did, because they did a good job with that. If they can capture that again, it could be really good. I'm not going to hold my breath. I'm not going to hold my breath. But it could be really good. So we'll see where they go with that. All right, guys. Got time for just a couple more here. 
Uh, Dave Green writes, Hey, John, have you watched the new season of Love, Death, and Robots? I haven't watched the first season. I'm not a Love, Death, and Robots fan. Uh, I don't love every episode, but an aspiring creative, I find the different art style and storytelling techniques they use incredibly inspiring. Love hanging out with you and the co every day. Yeah, it's too bad Rob's not here right now because Rob does watch Love, Death, and Robots, and he enjoys it quite. Actually, I know a number of people who really like that. It just never connected with me. It just... You know, again, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it never connected with me, so I don't watch it. So I haven't seen it, but I know Rob and many other people really do enjoy it. And one of the things they often mention, Dave, is the creativity in the techniques that are used to tell their stories. And you got to applaud that. You know, whenever you have ingenuity going into this stuff, that's always good. So again, it's unfortunate Rob's not here to address that, but I personally don't watch it. But thank you for being here and hanging out with us as we do our show, man. All right. Uh, next up, we've got Alex Von Gollum writes one of two. Hi, John, an extraordinary guest. Uh, since some time has gone by, I think a good time to ask, I think it's a good time to ask this. I love the character of Ray. I feel JJ Abrams didn't really develop her in the rise of Skywalker. Uh, seems to me that there is a gap between the scene where she defeats Kylo, uh, and the end of the flick where she was embraced, where she embraced who she truly is. I feel she didn't really have her come to Jesus moment, nor was her transition from confusion to, to determination really bridged. What are your thoughts, guys? Well, listen, you just in general, look, I obviously love Star Wars. I even love most of the Disney era Star Wars. I think The Force Awakens was bloody fantastic. I think Rogue One is bloody fantastic. Um, obviously, stuff they've done with Mandalorian, great. I really enjoyed Solo, even though that movie never should have been made. But I, I thought Solo was a great, fun, space sci-fi adventure film. Um, I liked um, The Last Jedi, although you guys know I had some major issues with The Last Jedi, but overall, I liked it. But the the Rise of Skywalker was so bad in so many ways and really highlighted the fact that Kathleen Kennedy's main failing, and Kathleen Kennedy is a Hollywood Hall of Famer. She's one of the greatest producers, if not the greatest producer in Hollywood history, blah, blah, blah. But her biggest mistake, and she's made several, uh, in being the head of Lucasfilm, is that when setting up a brand new trilogy, they didn't sit down and plan out the trilogy before they started shooting the first movie. They took on the attitude of, I will just wing it. We'll just wing it. Yeah, we'll make it up as we go. When any idiot could have told you, if you're going to do a new Star Wars trilogy, chart out the entire trilogy first. So everything is done with purpose and everything will have a flow to it. And instead, she's like, nah, we'll wing it. We'll just like let each director just do whatever they want to do. Just just wing it. Make it up as you go along, guys. Biggest mistake they made. And it really, now you can try to wing it and get away with it for a while. You can wing it and get away with it for a while. But at some point, it's going to catch up to you. And the rise of Skywalker was the ultimate catching up to you. Because everything you could just feel was so without purpose, so without plan, so without, was so rambled and so winging it. And the whole story was driven by amazing coincidences that would happen along the way. And then even this, can I bring this up too? 
and I don't mean to make this entire thing a whole let's shit on the rise of Skywalker, but you know, the whole thing is, you know, Leia saying to Ray, don't be afraid of who you really are. Embrace who you really are. Well, she's really a Palpatine. And the last thing she does in the movie, I'm Ray Skywalker. Wait, wasn't Leia just telling you embrace who you actually are? But okay, whatever. I guess we're not paying attention to that. But I, that's just one minor little thing. The whole movie. Now, I know there are many of you guys, like a lot of people like the rise, the, the rise of Skywalker. And that's great. I celebrate that. I'm not trying to yuck on your yum. If you like that movie, awesome. I want everybody to love every movie they watch, even the ones I don't like. But if you're going to bring it up to me, you want my opinion. Yeah, I thought it was pretty terrible. So what you are saying here, Alex, is accurate. But even though it's accurate, it's just merely symptomatic of the larger problem that plagued that entire movie that actually had its roots going all the way back to the failure to plan out and chart out what your movie was, what your three movies were going to be. And instead, they just winged it, and the results were not so good. All right, listen, we'll take one more, guys, then we got to wrap it up today. Uh, This last one comes to us from Ben Elman, who writes, so good to have Superman and Lois back this week. Yeah, I uh, this episode was great. This latest episode was great. I'm loving this show. Tyler Hoechlin, I still don't know how to pronounce his last name, has quickly become one of my favorite Superman actors. Both his Superman and Clark uh, are amazing. Can't wait for the rest of the season. And again, I know I'm a broken record on this thing, um, but I cannot emphasize how much I have hated the way CW has handled Superman yet how impressed I am with this Superman and Lois show. Because you guys know, I've talked for years, that CW just crapped all over Superman. They turned Superman into this weak, pathetic jobber whose only job in existing in the CW was to be embarrassed and humiliated to make Supergirl look good. You don't do that to Superman. Anyway, so I had no interest in this new Superman and Lois show, but they have knocked it out of the park. In my opinion, they have crushed it with this Superman show. They're doing it from a really different way than we've ever seen Superman really handled before, but I find it fascinating, and I find it's got real charm to it. I really love it. So, yeah, it's good to have it back uh, and seeing where it's going. All right, guys, listen. There are still more questions to come. Skylar Hillman, uh, Mr. Silva, Brand Solis, and others. Do not worry, guys. I'm going to do a companion video this weekend. I'll see if I can get a hold of um, – hold a sec. Why is this not working? Hold a second. Something just froze up on me here. Give me a moment. Okay, got it. All right. Anyway, uh, I'm going to do a companion video this weekend, guys. I'm going to see if I can get Kimberly in here to help me out with the companion video this weekend. And we will get all of the remaining questions answered in a companion video. So if you've sent in a question and we didn't have time to get to it uh, on today's show, don't worry. I'm Just check out the companion video that comes out. I'm going to get to every single question that you guys sent in, and we will get that answered this weekend. But for now, guys, that'll do it. For today's installment of The John Campion Show, thank you guys so much for making this show a part of your day. Thanks to Robert Meyer Burnett for bringing his glory and goodness to the show. And a special thank you to all of you guys who sent in these live questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you support this channel every time that you do. And all of us involved here with The John Campion Show and all the videos that we do, thank you guys very, very much. 
for that support. Okay, guys, remember to do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me for now, guys. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.